The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. It's always a privilege to have with us former pastor and teacher at Talbot Seminary, Mr. Dan Bly. Today Dan is talking about the parable of the Ten Minas. Let's join Dan now in his sermon. Good morning, my name is Dan Blyde, and I'm pinch hitting for Rick Foster this morning. If you ever had the joy of going on a trip with children, you know that uh, you get along about, oh, five minutes out of the driveway. Oops, wrong direction. And somebody, a little voice in the back pipes up, are we there yet, right? And you say, no, no, dear, it's going to be many hours. So another 15 minutes goes by, are we there yet? And of course you want to say, no, honey, if you look with just a bit out of the driveway, it's a long way to go here. And so about 15 minutes later, are we there yet? (laughs) Somebody's right with me. And then again, are we there yet? When we go on a journey, we look forward to the destination. We look forward to getting to where we're headed. This is not just a feature of little children on a trip. It was also a feature of Jesus' followers. They had been traveling with Jesus for about three years. Perhaps their interest had begun when uh, they heard John the Baptizer preaching and saying, listen, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were interested about that. Then following him came Jesus. John pointed to Jesus and said, listen to him. And he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then Jesus went all around preaching the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. Nathaniel, one of his early followers, said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So they were excited about this kingdom. And with good reason. Let me read you just a few descriptions from the Old Testament of what this kingdom was like. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Would you like to live in a world where the Lord is king over the holy earth? (laughs) I certainly would. Another scripture, it come about in in the last days that the mountain, the kingdom of the house of the Lord, will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords, instruments of war, into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Would you like to live in a world like that? 
It's also a description about one that comes from the root of the stem of Jesse, uh, from David. And when he comes, here's what it says. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Perfect harmony in every realm. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a day that will be. One more. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. One Old Testament scholar has put together, having studied all of the Old Testament references, these descriptions of what that kingdom would be like. I think if you think about these, and you can put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, you'd say, I'd like to see that come too. The sooner the better. The kingdom will have spiritual effects. Salvation from the hand of God by grace with true repentance, centered on the king, unbelievable joy throughout the world. It will have ethical effects, readjusted moral values. Could our world use this? <laughs> Measured by correct and objective moral standards grounded in truth and fairly applied. I'd like to live in that kind of a world. It will have social effects, warfare abolished, complete social justice. All worthwhile in human life will be tenderly fostered. Every legitimate interest of human life will receive its due. It will have political effects, international authority in the king, a world capital, the righting of political wrongs, a universal language. It will have physical effects, beneficial climate changes, Vastly expanded fruitfulness of land, increased fertility and productivity, changes in the animal world, harmony, the disappearance of physical disease and deformity, freedom from ordinary hazards. And finally, it will have religious effects. There'll be a priest king. Israel will be a blessing to the nations. Jerusalem, the home of the new temple and the world center for worship. Well, no wonder the disciples would have thought, this is great, I'd like to get on board. When is it coming? We think Jesus is the king. When is he going to bring that to pass? In fact, even after the uh, resurrection of Jesus, they were asking him, uh, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom? We're still interested in that coming. Well, we want to turn this morning to Luke chapter 19, where Jesus told a parable. They heard these things and proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear. They were excited. They were thinking it's about to come. 
Now, this is a parable, and so I'm going to give you a chance to kind of look over my shoulder as I unpacked the parallel myself. When you come to a parable, the first question you ask is, what's the original setting? Jesus didn't just walk along the road and think, now would be a nice time to say a parable. There's always a reason for it. Luke gives us some help here. They supposed that the kingdom was to appear immediately. They were ready. Jesus told this parable because they were thinking that. This also is the end of about 10 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, uh, recording Jesus' last great uh, journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And I think his followers assumed, we're going to the capital city, it's about to happen. And very soon after this, as Jesus went into Jerusalem, they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're ready for the kingdom. But you have to identify the reason that Jesus told the parable. Part of the reason, I guess, is the question is, when are you going to establish the kingdom? Is it now? They were supposing it was now. But as Jesus began to tell the story, he talks about a nobleman who goes away to a far distant country to get a kingdom and then to return. And so you get the impression, mm, maybe it's not going to be right away. Which, of course, leads to a second question. Well, then, what do you want us to do while we're waiting? The third step in unpacking a parable is to clarify the different elements in the story. Well, there are some missions here, three of them, in fact. The first one is the nobleman. He went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Interestingly, Herod the Great, who was the king when Jesus was born, when he died, his son Archelaus wanted to become the king after him. And so Archelaus had to leave Palestine and go off to Rome to see if he could get the privilege of being the king. Many of the people, the Jewish people, didn't want him to be king, so they sent a delegation to Rome as well, saying, we don't want this guy to be king. And the emperor listened to them, and so Archelaus returned, but as an ethnarch, not as a king. So this story, which had happened in recent years, perhaps is the basis for some of Jesus' story here. The second mission is that of his servants. What are we supposed to do? Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. Well, what's a mina? Well, this will help you. It's one-sixtieth of a talent. I know. What's a talent? A talent was 6,000 denarii. A denarii is basically a day's wage. And so a talent would be 20 years' wages. So if I do my math right, a mina is one-sixtieth of the talent. It's about 100 denarii. It's about three months' wages. Okay? So you've just done your taxes recently. How much do you make in three months? Okay? That was your, your mina. That's what Jesus, uh, the, the nobleman, who obviously pictures Jesus, gave to his servants. And he said, do business. There was another group, some who hated him. Not everybody was thrilled 
by this prospect of him becoming their king. And so they sent a delegation after him. We don't want this man to reign over us. And it's pretty easy, it seems to me, to, to, to picture Jesus as the nobleman in this story, don't you think? And the servants would be people like you and me who are his followers. And the enemies would be those that aren't receiving him, much of the Jewish establishment and so on. Then the nobleman comes back. There is a reckoning. When he returned, having received the kingdom or the kingship, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So there's an accountability. These servants, in other words, were stewards managing some of the master's resources while he was gone. That's what he gave them to do. Now he's going to assess how they did. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And what's the percent return, you mathematicians? 1,000%. That's pretty good, don't you think? You know, 300 days worth, of, I mean, a quarter's worth of income times 10 would almost be enough to buy a house. So he'd done pretty well. Notice how nicely he says it. Not, Lord, I made, Lord, your mina. Your investment. He said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, I'll give you authority over ten cities. <laughs> well, that's considerably more than a house, isn't it? The second servant came. Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Now, does it seem like this nobleman is quite generous in the rewards that he gives? for their efforts. They didn't do the same amount, but both of them received a generous reward. Servant number three comes, and that's the last we hear of these ten. So we kind of gather that if you understand the principle with one, two, and three, you understand how you would uh, deal with all ten of them. The third said, Lord, here's your mina. Give it back to you which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. Put it under my mattress, we would say. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Now, just on the face of it, is that true? Does he reap what he doesn't sow? I mean, he gave minus to them. You're a severe man. This servant seems to have a different attitude, doesn't he, toward the nobleman than the other ones. One wonders, did he really think the king was ever going to return? Certainly, no sense of loyalty here. Although, interestingly, he was numbered among the ten servants. If you've been looking from the outside, you think, yeah, he's one of those guys that belongs to the king. Well, the Lord said, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, did you? Taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Is that what you thought of me? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected interest. 
He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. So even what he had, he's lost. And there's no reward for him. He's a wicked servant. The others said, Lord, and perhaps these are the other servants, he's already got ten. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. Here's the point. You use it or you lose it. Okay? The first two used it. They, re- they received generous rewards. The third one didn't. And even what he had was taken away. And then to round out the story, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The fourth step in tackling a parable then is to see what is the central truth. And usually it's the answer to the question. So we said the first question was, uh, when are you going to establish the kingdom? I think you gather from the story when he says that a, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return, that it's not going to be right away. They were supposing, now we're going to Jerusalem, here comes the kingdom. No, it's going to be delayed. It's coming, but the nobleman's going to go away to a far country, receive it, and come back. There's going to be a delay. Which brings us to the second question. Well, what do you want us to do until you establish it? Engage in business until I come. Now, we happen to be in that same position, don't we? The master has gone away to receive a kingdom. He still has not returned. We join with these servants as followers. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to engage in his business until he comes. Now, when I tackle a parable, I always try to go back overwards after and, and relate the details to the central truth. Some of the details are just drapery. Some are important. Here's the way that I did it. I thought the ten servants was drapery. It could have been five servants. It could have been 50 servants. Uh, the mina could have been a different uh, monetary amount. The fact that the citizens hated him, sent a delegation, that they dealt with the enemies, I think it's drapery, although you could perhaps make a point that he's talking about those opposed to him. But here's the key elements, I think. There was a nobleman. He went on a journey to receive kingship. He returned. When he returned, the servants gave an account. The results vary. And he gives rewards. Now, the last step in tackling a parable is to discover the intended appeal. Why did Jesus tell this story? More to the point, what should I do in light of this particular story? How does this relate to us today? Well, it's pretty apparent, it seems to me, that the master in this story has an investment mentality. If he's given me anything, and he has, then I need to use what he has given me. I need to engage in business 
I need to use the resources that He has given me until He comes. And certainly the parable is clear. One day there's going to be an accounting. I'm going to make a report. He's going to sit down with me and go over what I did with the things that He has given me. Well, so what? How do I begin to apply this? And well, there's going to be accountability and consequences. And so I need to be diligent. Use it or lose it. It's required of stewards, people that are managing somebody else's stuff, that they be faithful. And so you and I need to be faithful. Now, a second thing is that the rewards will vary. Notice in this story uh, about the minas that there's equal gifts, right? They all got one. Some did more with what they got than others. And so the rewards vary proportionally to what they did. Do Do you follow that? Now, some of you will think, you know, this sounds a lot like a story that Jesus told elsewhere, doesn't it? And you're right. In Matthew 25, he told a story about some servants that he gave talents to. You know what a talent is now, right? 20 years wages. Five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to a third. That time it wasn't equal divisions. And they all were, the first two at least, were equally faithful. And the Lord said to the five-talent guy and the two-talent, both who doubled it, well done, good and faithful servant. Equal rewards. However, that third servant with the one talent, just like our third servant here, didn't do anything with it. Betrayed that they had no relationship with the king. End up going to judgment. This is encouraging to me. Some of us, perhaps, if we're light bulbs, feel like we're a 10-watt bulb. We're a 50-watt bulb. Or a 100-watt bulb. We admire people that are 500-watt bulbs or 1,000-watt bulbs. Okay? But my job is to shine with all of my 10 watts. And if I am faithful, God will reward me generously. It doesn't do me any good to look at somebody else and say, man, he's got so many more watts than I do. The question is, what am I doing with my watts? Now, let me clarify something here for you, just in case. The basis for establishing a connection between you and God is your trust in Jesus Christ and what He has done. Where you will go when you are done here is determined by what you did with Jesus Christ and whether you trusted in Him. However, when you get there, what you will have by way of rewards is determined by your obedience, by your diligence. Do you see the distinction? I get there by grace, through faith. When I get there, there are rewards that are based on my obedience, on my diligence in serving the Lord. Now, genuine faith 
the Bible says, will produce some faithfulness and diligence and obedience. Faith without works is dead. And so in both of these parables, Luke 19 and Matthew 25, the servant who did nothing is lost. Even though externally he looked like he was part of the group that belonged to that nobleman, he wasn't. We would say in our parlance today, he showed up to church every day, every Sunday. We thought he all was you know, part of the, the group. But if there is no faithfulness, no diligence, no desire to serve the king and use what he gave to you, how do you say that you belong to him? What a shock it will be. Faith alone saves. Okay? But the faith that saves is never alone. Works do not determine our destination. That's by faith. But they serve as an indicator of where you're going. And they will affect the rewards you experience. Now, I suspect that there may be some here who are saying, oh, I don't know about this. It seems sort of unspiritual to, to serve the Lord, to be diligent in using, engaging in business for Him, for rewards. It's so mercantile, so capitalist, or whatever. Look at here. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Why did he do that? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Look here. For he was looking to the reward. Try another one. Do you not know that in a race, so all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box, says Paul, as one beating the air. Or take this example. Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which so clings, to, clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, notice who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Who for the joy that was set before him. One more. Without faith it is impossible to please him. Amen, right? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek Him. C.S. Lewis wrote, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant or the Stoics is no part of the Christian faith. 
Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Well, the underlying principle here is that there's going to be a future reckoning for my service, for your service. It seems to me, then, that preparation for that reckoning should be important to me now. Does that make sense? I should be prudent in the use of all the resources that I have because I'm a steward. Somebody whose skills, time, energy, and wealth are really dedicated to God. Now, is that true of you? You say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a steward. I mean, I understand the, this Bible stuff about Jesus giving me gifts and I'm responsible. So are your skills available for him to use? Is your time? Is your energy is your wealth, all the different things that he has entrusted to you. It seems to me these are the kind of thoughts we should be thinking. Lord, you've entrusted me with many resources. Do I need to remind you that you live in the richest culture in the history of the world? That your lifestyle is better than most of the great characters in history? I know we're all in that boat, but many resources. I want to learn to use them, Lord, frequently and skillfully in your business. Where in my world do you want me to go? To see, to participate in Christ-centered ministries, meeting physical and spiritual needs. That was the business of our Lord. Engage in business till I come. Lord, am I treating you as the owner and CEO of my assets? <clears throat> or am I treating you merely as a financial consultant to my pay a fee? Let's be generous and say it's 10%. Am I listening, living to hear others say of me, He's a great success. Or have you say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. I have two analogies here to perhaps help you think through this. The first one I've used before, but perhaps you'll forgive me for using it. It's such a good illustration. I want you to picture yourself as alive at the end of the Civil War. Okay? You're a northerner, but you're living in the south. You're planning to move back to the north as soon as the war is over. But while in the south, you've accumulated a considerable amount of Confederate currency. That's the money that you have to use to buy things there. You know for a fact that the north is going to win the war. And you're sure that the end is coming pretty soon. 
Okay, you got your situation there? So what are you going to do with your Confederate money? Well, I think if you're wise, you're going to immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, right? I can take the currency that I have here, which I know very soon will be worthless, and I can transfer it into the currency that will be very valuable in the future. Recently, I gave away one of my cars to a ministry, and the fellow that came to pick it up said, Now, what do you want? And I said, I want you to get me treasure in heaven. <laughs> okay? I was taking the currency I had here, and I was trading it for treasure in heaven. And that's what we do with everything that we have. So how much uh, Confederate currency are you planning to have left at your death? Now, I know this is not an easy question. I think about this. I don't want to have a whole lot left, but I want to have enough to live until I die. So how much do I need to conserve? I can't go back and earn it again. That chapter in my life is past. So I've got to conserve what I have, but I don't want it all left. You know, and I'm gone, and now this worthless currency is here. So in light of these things, what needs to change in the use of your, the resources that God has entrusted to you? Time, energy, wealth. Well, that's one analogy. I like that one. I like this next one, too. And I thought about trying to use it, and then I thought, no, I'll let Francis Chan do it himself because it's his illustration. I think you'll find it interesting. Do I need to hit it again? going, man, what am I going to look forward to at the end? I'm going to bring an illustration that, this is like the first illustration I did. It was 20 years ago, but I can't think of a better way to, to explain it. Um, I actually didn't use a rope back then. I used a, remember a, remember a computer paper when uh, it was all stuck together and it had the holes on the side that you had to peel off? Remember that? I remember getting a, a roll, and some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, which is crazy to me. But... Uh, because that was the best, you know, and um, and it never worked right because the rolling things. But uh, but I, I had I remember being a youth pastor and I put uh, that computer paper all the way around the room, and uh, but I'm going to use a rope now because I can't find that computer paper. Um, imagine this rope, okay? Pretend this rope just goes on forever, okay? Just imagination. Pretend it goes around the world a few times. It doesn't. It ends at the rock, but. Uh, Let's just imagine this thing goes on forever. Now imagine that this rope is a timeline of your existence. You just exist forever. You see this red part? This would represent your time on earth. You've got a few short years here on earth and then you've got all of eternity somewhere else. This is, this is your existence. And what blows me away is some of you, all you think about is this red part. 
It's all you think about. You're consumed with this. You go, oh man, I can't wait till here. You know, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to save, save, save so I can really enjoy this part right here. And you're consumed with that. And you're thinking, oh man, am I going to get to travel? Am I going to eat well? Am I going to do this during this part? And I'm like, are you kidding me? What about this? What about this? What about th- what about all this stuff? It's just it's crazy to me because because the Bible teaches that what I do during this little red part determines how I'm going to exist for millions and millions and millions of years forever. And and so why would I spend this little red part trying to make myself as comfortable as possible, enjoying myself as much as I can? Paul says, look, I'm going to live my life for this mission. I'm going to spend my life, invest my life for this moment when I cross that finish line. See, I'm going to forget about all this stuff I could enjoy. And I'm not going to look around. I'm going to be like a runner just looking at that moment when I face God. Because when I face Him, then I don't get this chance over again. We get one chance at this life on earth. And it can end at any second for any of us. We've got one chance at this. And then comes eternity. And I'm not going to be fooled. I'm not going to spend my life down here. See, people look at some of my decisions and go, oh, you're so stupid because that's going to really affect this. I go, no, you're stupid because that's going to affect all of this. Man, I, I, I'm serious. I, I look. I look at the way people live and I go, wow, that is so crazy. You are so crazy. You're going you're gonna to do that right now. Just enjoy right now. Not even knowing if you have tomorrow and you think that's smart and that I'm dumb? It doesn't make any sense. Paul goes, I'm not going to look around at all this stuff. And it's tempting. It's tempting to all of us. That's what I'm saying down here. It's crazy because everyone lives that way. Everyone lives for the red part. No one's thinking about the millions of years afterwards. It's, it's, it's this crazy deception that we can't get out of our minds. And Paul goes, I'm not doing that. He goes, I keep my eyes on that. I keep my eyes on that finish line. And I'm going to forget what's behind me. I'm not looking around. I'm just going to, I'm straining. He goes, I'm straining forward. I'm like stretching forward for that mark. I'm going to pass this thing. I'm going to live this out. And I'm going to face him. I'm going to come before the judges. And he's going to hand me that trophy. He goes, I'm going to get it. And I haven't gotten there yet. He goes, but you better believe I'm using every muscle, exerting every bit about me. Because I'm going to pass that line well. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www. Dot Rancho Baptist Church dot org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.